The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, uh, yeah, I did move to Spokane in 2014, uh, but I actually started vocational ministry in 2000. I pastored a small church in New England, so right kind of on the Connecticut River. I always tell people the square that is Vermont and New Hampshire, we were dead, dead in the center of that, right on the Connecticut River. Church was in New Hampshire. We lived in Vermont. Um, very much like here, Vermont is, is beautiful, and I'm glad to not live there. <laughs> That's how I feel about California. <laughs> so, um, and apparently 800,000 other people feel that way about California uh, from what I've heard this year. So you guys are taken off, I guess. So, um, but when I, got to, when I got to that small church in New England, it had been really probably three decades before the saints in that little church uh, had really been taught expositionally, had been taught verse by verse through the scriptures, and, and what had, had been built in this little fellowship was basically a church built around anything you might hear on Christian radio. So think about Christian radio in the 80s and 90s, and everything that was taught on Christian radio was basically what these people believed and practiced, which meant there wasn't a lot of people helping people from the scriptures to understand and overcome the issues uh, of life. And as I dove into pastoral ministry, what I found out was if you live that way for 30 years, not learning how to solve your problems from the scriptures... You, you develop more problems. That's what happens. And so um, I quickly needed to begin the process of equipping the, that small church to, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to instruct one another, to comfort one another. And that was really what my introduction into counseling was. It, it wasn't because I had always had some longing to be a counselor or a counselor equipper. It was because I just wanted to see God's people, lay people in the local church, encouraging one another from his word. And, and that was just sort of the, the means to, to develop that in that local church. That desire of equipping saints just grew and grew and grew in me over the 14 years that we spent in New England. And we had a, a wonderful time there and a, and a, and a good uh, possibility and a good, uh, the timing was good for us to move to Spokane when we did in 2014. And what Faith Bible Church wanted to do was to equip their people, and particularly their sort of second layer of leaders, to minister the Word of God to the saints there. When I first got there, I did a little focus group, and we got a group of people together to find out what are people's expectations for small group leaders at Faith Bible Church. And my takeaway from that like two-hour little meeting that we had with a cross-section of people from Faith Bible Church was, the Bible study leader's job is to get through the lesson and finish on time. That was their only job. That was the only expectation. I'm like, okay, so like if you were having trouble with your, your teenage kids, would you go to your, your leader and ask advice? No. No, they said. Well, if you're like having a conflict with your boss at work and, and you don't really know what to do, would you, would you go to your, your Bible study leader for advice? No. And I rattled off a bunch of questions like that, thinking I'm going to hit on something. I mean, these, these leaders got to be good for something other than finishing the lesson and getting, getting done on time. And that really was the only expectation. 
And again, if that becomes the expectation over time, you'll, you'll live up to only that expectation. And so it had, it had sort of drifted just a bit, I would say, from the moorings of, of a, a small group leader, an under-shepherd, if you will, being that first line of spiritual care. So we, we just began the process of building that into the life of our church, transforming the expectation on the one hand, but then also equipping these men and women to provide that kind of spiritual care on the other. And it's been, uh, it's been a great eight, almost nine years now in Spokane, and I'm super thankful for what I've seen God do. And I'm super thankful that faith gives me the, the, the freedom to do this. This is about the sixth or seventh place I've gone in the last few years and done something very, very similar. There's some nuances that we're, uh, that we're running through this weekend with you all, but uh, essentially my hope is that over the next couple of days and into Sunday, that uh, God in his grace will, will help us build some theological uh, convictions about spiritually caring for one another in our church family and some ecclesiastical commitments. Why, why is it that you're the ones that are called to do that, as Corey was just saying, and, and not necessarily all that work being done uh, by those with the, the title of pastor? And then hopefully along the way, some practical stories and some practical tools that will equip you to provide some of that care uh, and counsel to one another. So uh, that, would be, that would be my goal. And so tonight uh, is really a focus on those theological convictions. We're going to talk in the first session about the sufficiency of the Word of God. This is the tool that God has put into the hands of His, of his soldiers, if you will, to, to help uh, bring about spiritual transformation in the life of the church and in the life of of every Christian. And then in the second session, we're going to talk about the spiritual power that God gives us to affect that transformation in us. Not just affect it, but I think to, to motivate it. Um, and we'll talk about Romans 6 and Romans 7, sort of a helicopter view of Romans 6 and 7, to see uh, what God has really done in this so great salvation that we have possessed by His grace. So, 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about spiritual transformation. There Paul writes to the church in Corinth, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the the Spirit. Now Paul's obviously, he's not talking about every individual Christian having a literal vision of the glory of the Lord as a, as a means of transformation. How do we see the glory of the Lord revealed to us in this age? We do so as we, we look into the self-revelation of God himself in the word. And so the means of spiritual transformation truly is the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul finishes this whole section, this whole little verse on transformation by saying this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And as Christians, I think we, we, it's easy for us, good Baptists, good Bible church Christians, to say we're committed to the Bible as the inerrant, authoritative Word of God. We believe it's true from beginning to end. We, we embrace that it is the standard by which we live and the, the standard of truth by which we test all other truth claims. It, it must be the foundation and the 
the final authority for everything we hold true. But then when we start talking about some practical issues of life, uh, practical issues of life that, that I would describe as real and genuine affliction, we're, we're not sure if the Word of God can address those. We, we struggle understanding how, how does it address issues of that nature. When we start asking questions about things like PTSD or, or panic attacks, when we think of words like narcissism, we say, hmm, these, these seem like certainly things that I, I can't find in here. And so how, how can the Word of God authoritatively and adequately address issues like that when I can't find them in the Scriptures? And I really think in the modern church today that this matter, not the authority of Scripture and not even the inerrancy of Scripture, those things I think we believe with all of our hearts, but this question of the sufficiency of Scripture, is it really sufficient to, to help us understand and answer the most difficult questions of, of life? And I'm here to tell you, as someone who does and sees a lot of counseling, things like PTSD and depression and panic attacks and, and narcissism, those, those are some of the most difficult questions of life. And so I want to talk about this matter of the sufficiency of Scripture. I want to tell you some ways that I think we subtly, as Christians, uh, though we, I, I think, believe it, we, we sometimes subtly undermine our commitment to this idea that the Bible is sufficient. And we're going to talk about a few of those things. And then we're going to kind of meander through a passage of Scripture that I think helps us at least begin to see. We're, 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 we're not going to mine all the depths uh, this weekend, but we're going to begin to see how it is that the sufficiency of Scripture should be bearing itself out a little bit through looking at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. Whenever I talk on this topic, I love reading the statement on sufficiency from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what it reads. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty long sentence, for the, first of all, right? So let's just acknowledge that. Most of us can't talk in sentences that long anymore. But really what they're saying is, the Bible is an adequate, sufficient guide for all matters of faith and conduct. And we don't need anything else. This, this truly is what God has given to us. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's, that's what he promises. And that is essentially what the sufficiency of Scripture is. And, and again, I, I think we often give lip service to it and then don't fully understand the subtle ways that the broader Christian community undermines it. Let me share a few ways that I think that happens. One would be the plethora 
of self-help books that exist out there. Just books that say, here's the six keys to that. Here's the seven things that your wife wishes you knew about women. Here's whatever, right? Just anything that kind of falls in that self-help category. And I think, you know, there's, there's usefulness sometimes in the descriptions and the anecdotes and tools like that. But if, if what changes me is six steps to something and those six steps aren't God's steps, if we want to put it that way, who gets the glory? And, and have I really been changed into the image of Christ or have I been changed into the image of Captain Six Steps, whatever his name might be, right? So I'll never forget when I started pastoring that little church out in New Hampshire. I was, well, the first thing I need to do is equip the men. I got to get the men together. So I got all the men together. Let's have men's group. Here we go. Men's equipping hour. We're going to talk about how to be a godly, how to be a godly husband, right? And so I described, this is what a godly husband is supposed to look like. And some guy says, we tried all that. It doesn't work. I'm like, hmm, okay. What do you mean it doesn't work, right? These guys had all been to promise keepers, and they don't, we've spent the last 12 months keeping seven promises, like nobody's business, and it doesn't work. I'm like, whoa, now I see what you're saying. You're not getting what you want. Ah, there's some, some motivations in there that need to be unearthed, right? But again, as, as helpful as those commitments were, if we keep all those commitments, is it, is it really the image of Christ or is it the image of the seven promises? What is it? I just think it's subtle, but man, I want my changes to be rooted here. And when I do root the, the changes that I'm trying to make in my life to God's word, they stick. You know why? Because every time I step across the line that God has called me to live, I'm like, that's not my line. That's God's line. I got to get, get back in line with what God has called me to be and what God has called me to do for His glory's sake. Right? So there's, a, there's an authority there and there's a, there's a power there that won't let me go where with self-help books, it's, it's easy to let them go. I think another way uh, is, is when in the churches where there's a lot of pragmatism, where this, the philosophy of, of ministry is more about getting anyone and everyone into the door just to hear something. And in the process, the truth is, is dumbed down or brought down to some lowest common denominator. And without, without intention, I think, people who lead in churches like that don't, don't understand that what they're really saying is the Word of God's not powerful enough just doing what God has called us to do in His Word and proclaiming the message God has given to us in His Word isn't enough. We need to make it palatable. We need to make it uh, simpler than what, what God says. Another way is I think when we get wrapped up in, I'm going to call it spiritual mysticism, but just this subtle belief that I, I'm just waiting for God to do something mysterious and mystical and, and spiritual in me. That I, I want God to kind of zap me a little bit and say, you know, just, just change me right away. Um, and it could be subtle, like, I've, I've prayed for God to take this desire away, and He hasn't done it. Well, that's, 
That's not necessarily how God changes people, just by snatching desires away from us. Or, I mean, here's one that uh, we're all dealing with, California, Washington, and just about everywhere else. Just, just political correctness, right? Is, is the Bible sufficient to talk about things like LGBTQ and these transgender questions? It absolutely is. Uh, but the more ground that the broader church gives to thinking about those issues and talking about those issues and the way the world is demanding that we talk about them, uh, to that extent, we're giving away the ground that the Bible really can address the difficult issues of life. Certainly, we want to be compassionate people who sympathetically and, and humbly minister to, to people who are caught up in all of that, but, uh, but we, can't, we can't give the ground that the Bible is not the standard of, of truth. And then I think probably the most prevalent way that this happens is, is in our culture, just the presumption that the, the things that are happening in, our, our, uh, in our, our moods and emotions are biological. And there's a lot of different ways that that, that, could, that could come out. It could come out through the idea of chemical imbalances. It could come out through the idea of of trauma and neurological synapses uh, being uh, in, altered beyond uh, remedy, etc. There's lots of different ways that that comes out. And I, I always get questions on that, so don't be afraid to ask those questions. We'll have some Q&A tomorrow. I love those questions. Um, and give me an opportunity to clarify. I'm just saying step back for a minute and say what, what happened in the, the 2,000 years since Jesus before the last 50 years? How did, how did people think? How did people reason? How did people struggle through those issues? Real struggles, real afflictions. Let's, let's not minimize the pain and suffering that people go through, uh, but ask ourselves the question, is, is that so true that the Bible can't speak into the lives of people who suffer in those ways? Well, in contrast to those subtle ways that that gets undermined, uh, when you begin to survey the, the scriptures, hey, I got a question. Alan, where's my clock? I don't have a clock. It could be dangerous if I don't have a clock. I mean, it, I mean, seriously, like, you remember that story about the guy that fell out of the rafters and died and the whole thing in Acts? Paul preached until midnight. You remember that one? Yeah, I mean, it's basically on the table right now. Here, there we go. That's not my dance moves. I, that's, another, that's another thing altogether. We do vintage swing dancing. That's what we do. So like Lindy Hop and Charleston and Balboa and, and Collegiate Shag, if you know what that is. Uh, it's a pretty energetic thing. Okay, so what does the Bible say? And there will be no workshops on that. There will be no demonstrations. Um, what does the Bible say? If you begin to survey how the Bible itself declares itself sufficient. Um, I mean, we, we could just read passages of Scripture for the next hour. I think a couple of the key ones. Uh, I quoted John 8, 31, 32 a little bit ago. The tr- you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge 
of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I mean, that's a very strong statement. Becoming partakers of the divine nature. That's amazing. Everything that pertains to life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Him, which of course comes to us through the truth of God's Word. We're familiar with Hebrews 4, verse 12, right? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're familiar with, I, I think, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And when you read through that psalm, and I'm like, those, those are the very problems I face every day walking through the doors of our counseling center. People who need their soul revived. People who need their, their simple minds made wise by God's Word. People who come in not with hearts that are rejoicing, but hearts that are despairing and depressed. The commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. People just not seeing clearly at all the world from, from God's perspective. And I, I, I read that passage, and though it's couched in all the ancient language and poetic structure of the Old Testament, it looks like our world. That, that is, and this is what God has given to us to address those issues. Now, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to, again, kind of jump through this very clear description of how it is that the Word of God is sufficient in our lives. How does it manifest its sufficiency for us if we're understanding it correctly? Now, the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is, is the whole, the world is going to get worse and worse. And it, that's gonna, it's going to be bad in the church too. People having a form of godliness, though denying its power. But Timothy had, had showed himself faithful, and this is Paul's last letter to his, his, his young protege, Timothy. And he's encouraging him to stay strong in the faith, stay committed to the Word of God. And here's how he says it, starting at verse 14. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from, from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so there you see that language again, like just all things pertaining to life and godliness, that we might become partakers of the divine nature, or here, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. That's how it's translated in, in my New American Standard. The Word of God is sufficient to transform us into being and doing everything God has called us to be and do, 
And, and that is why, and again, let's not miss where we're headed. That is why this is the sufficient tool for you, fellow Christian, to minister to one another in order to help each other grow, in order to help each other find hope and joy and stability and wisdom in all the issues of life. That's why we need to have that theological conviction, this theological foundation that if God has called me to care for someone, what are the means he has given me to provide that care? This this is the means, the sufficient means that God's given you to provide that care. I like how he begins here to describe in verse 15 the scriptures, uh, Paul to Timothy calls it the sacred writings. That word sacred is sometimes translated holy. It's, it's the, the, the version of the holy word that's used for the holy city, the holy temple, the, the holy services, the sacred articles in the temple. And it's, it's sacred. It's, it's uniquely holy or set apart in the sense or in the, because of its unique connection to God. That's the idea that we have sacred scriptures. And I always illustrate it. You know, most, most of us at some point probably had a junior high crush. Anybody here have a junior high crush? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> right? And that junior high crush reaches across the aisle at some point and they hand you that little note and you, you, re- you read that note and you reread that note and you stuck that note under your pillow and you read it before you went to bed and you read it again the next morning. Right? Because that was the note from your crush. Right? That's far less sacred than this. A silly love note connected to a junior high kid is not nearly as sacred as the Word of God that, has its, that connects us to the majestic, holy God of the universe. Right? The sacred writings. Oh, that we would have hearts that, that saw it that way, that woke up in the morning and said, I, I can't wait to read the note that God gave me today, whatever it might be, wherever it is in his word. And those sacred writings, Paul says, are able. That's the powerful word in the Bible. Those sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. It is powerful. It has the ability to transform Lives. That's why, uh, though we would talk of the Spirit of God as the agent of spiritual growth and change, this is the means. This is the means that the Spirit of God uses to do that. And what a privilege it is to bring people to right to the face of God through His Word as a, as a means of, of spiritual change. And it's not just, you know, occasional places or hit and miss, it's all Scripture is inspired, down, down to every last word, right? Jesus said, don't, don't nullify even the least of these commandments or teach others, or you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Bad news, Matthew 5. Uh, not the smallest letter or stroke is going to pass away. We've got, we've got a, a wealth of truth in here that we should be going to. All the scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, right? The, the word Uh, literally means breathed out. So it should be translated expired, but all scripture is expired. Just, it didn't sell well, right? No, 
breathed out is a better way to, to say it, literally, because it's telling us that these words on, in our scriptures are as much the, the words of God as though he were standing here and the breath was coming out of his mouth with the words attached to him. That's what it means. And in an ancient world where most of the world was illiterate, written words did not mean much to them. And so to speak of the Bible as breathed out by God uh, helped solidify for uh, an illiterate world uh, what they truly were. And then Paul says these inspired scriptures are profitable or useful or, or beneficial. They're designed by God to accomplish something. And what he's designed the word to accomplish in us is not just information or not give us an object of critical analysis. It's not there to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. In fact, all it does for me is create more intellectual curiosity. Uh, Every time I read it, I'm like, oh, I want details. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Like, give me a detail there. Uh, but we don't get it more, most often because God's not there to just satisfy our curiosity. He's there to reveal himself and how we can grow and change uh, as we gaze at his image. But notice, he's designed the scriptures to be profitable or useful or beneficial in four ways, right? There's four things here. Teaching, reproof or conviction, I think is a better word, correction, and training in righteousness. So teaching, conviction, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, I, I think in good Bible churches like this one, uh, the teaching part is the thing we do really well. We teach content. We teach good doctrine. We, we help people understand the truth. Uh, so that is, that is awesome. We need to keep doing that. And don't ever stop doing that, Right? But understanding content doesn't automatically transform us, right? So I can tell you in all the counseling with with married couples that I've done, Christian couples anyway, I've never had a husband come in to my office and, and not know that the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But if all they've done is gone to the Word of God and let it teach them that, that truth, that principle, and they haven't allowed that truth to convict them and correct them and result in training in righteousness, then they're not necessarily growing, right? And so, you know, often I'll read that with men and say, what, what do you need to do? And they, they always say the same thing. You know what they say? Oh, I need to love my wife more good. I'm always like, good, but that's not enough. you gotta, you got to take it a step deeper. And I think that's what these other concepts are communicating. It's profitable for teaching. Second, it's profitable for reproof. And I've said conviction, I think is the better word, because the word, the word there is, is not the word for rebuke. Like you, When we hear reproof in English, I think I think the idea of rebuking or confronting is kind of there. But that's, that's not the word that's here. The word here is that legal term that means to, to lay out a case that proves your guilt. That's the idea. Our English word for that is convict, right? That's why it's a, a legal term. It's something that we do in a court. 
And Jesus used the same word in John 8, 46, when he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? He's talking to the Pharisees. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Who can lay out a case and prove that I have sinned in any way? That's what he's saying to the, to the Pharisees. And of course, uh, no, no one could. And it's also the, the word that Jesus uses in Revelation 3 when he's writing the letter to the church in Laodicea, the church that wasn't hot or cold, but lukewarm, right? And you say I'm rich and, become, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, right? He's laying out the case against them. Here's what you think. Here's what you say. Here's what the facts are. And then he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And that's what he was doing there. He was reproving them. He was laying out the case. And, and that's what this, this word means. It, it, it means not just the charge of, of what's wrong, but it's, it's laying out the truth of the charge and, uh, and the facts of that charge in a way that secures someone's humble acknowledgement or admission of the truth of that charge that, that really can convicts them, that brings them to the point of acknowledging their guilt. That's the idea. And that's what the Word of God does. And that's why I think we need to go beyond just, I need to love my wife more. So in order to let the Word of God convict a man, I, I need to take it a step further and, and ask him, how are you failing to love your wife? Let's talk about that. What, what is that looking like in your home? right? And, and why is that wrong? Why, why is it wrong to, to not pay attention to her? Why is it wrong to spend too much time in the, in the woods or in the trout stream or on the golf course or whichever your place is? I don't know. What is it here? Gun range? What, what is it? <laughs> I, I don't know. Wait, those are illegal here, aren't they? Are gun ranges illegal in California? I don't know. Whatever is illegal here is going to be illegal in Washington in six months. That's how I keep track of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's what conviction does. It takes it that step further and says, what is, is specifically wrong? And why does the Bible describe that as wrong? That's what brings conviction. And, uh, I mean, I, I love this topic. I could keep going, but I don't have time. But uh, I think we often make the mistake of saying, well, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Well, yes, how does the Holy Spirit convict people through the Word of God? And how do other people hear the Word of God? Well, I can read it for myself, but I often need someone to expose me. I I need someone to help me understand the specifics. And so that's part of what mutual care for one another does. And I'm really glad that God doesn't just teach us what's right and then show us how wrong we are but that the Word of God itself can correct us. It also corrects us. It can, it can essentially teach our hearts and minds enough to stand us back up on our feet, point us in the direction of godliness, and kind of give us a shove in that direction. And so when we go to the Word of God with those specifics, what are the specific ways I'm failing to love my wife? And what are the, the virtues of love and affection and sacrificial service that God wants me to to put on? What does he want me to pursue? How does he want me to pursue that? That's the correction. It's going to the Word of God and saying, this is bigger than just knowing what's wrong. 
It's asking God to show me from your word what is the right thing to pursue. That's the correction part. And, And I think involved in all of that is the process of repentance and confession, seeking forgiveness. I mean, it's not just uh, acknowledging the wrong and, and embracing the right and, and moving toward it. It's, it's making sure that we're reconciling with everyone in the, in the middle and having that mutual affection. That's an important part of it, that we're confessing and forsaking our sin and finding mercy. As Proverbs 28.13 says, we're finding mercy from God first and foremost because the sin is first and foremost against Him and primarily against Him. But we're also confessing and forsaking our sin before others as a means of engendering that affection and and mercy and grace in our relationships, which we're all, all so needy of. And then fourth, it's useful for training in righteousness. This idea of training, I think, means so the correction gives us the virtue to pursue and it shoves us in the right direction. I I, I don't, maybe uh, the training in righteousness is the the aspect that keeps us moving there. That doesn't doesn't make that shove just just that one step in the right direction, but that, that is sustaining the momentum toward godliness and toward. Change. That's the idea of this training in righteousness. This is the word that's used in Ephesians 6.4 for fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, the training of the Lord. Um, and it's used again in Hebrews 12 in a very, you know, the Hebrews 12 passage, the Lord disciplines those he's, he loves. It's often translated discipline because it, it doesn't just involve the knowing But it involves repeated practice that results in character. So uh, how do we train our children? I think that's just a great illustration of what God wants to do in our life because we are his children, right? And so if we uh, sat down at the dinner table tonight and little Johnny says, I want some milk. Mommy and daddy are going to say, what do you say? What do you say in your home? How uh, do you ask, maybe? Uh, right, you're going to say something at that point. You know, Yes, Sir Johnny, <laughs> let me run to the fridge and get you some more milk. That's not what you're going to say. You're going you're gonna to tell Johnny he needs to, you need to ask properly. How do we ask properly? Right? You need to say please. Whatever it is in your home, that is, that is the discipline, the kind of instruction and structure and consequences sometimes, that's why it's translated discipline, that helps someone be trained, that produces sustained virtue. And is that not what we're trying to do with our children, right? Because we tell them, you must say please before you can get more milk. And fortunately, we only have to tell them once. And then they're like, there, there they are, you know. 15-year-old kid saying please every time. Isn't that how it worked out for those of you who've raised teenagers? Uh, No, that's not how it works. We have to do it over and over and over again, don't we? We're training them. And the Word of God is telling us that in order to produce character, godliness, that you need to let the Word of God train you in that righteousness so that you're, you're not just taking a step toward virtue, 
But you say, you know what? I'm going to make that my life. That's going to be my life's pursuit. I'm going to sustain those changes. I'm going to ask God to help me and strengthen me to transform my heart so that I'm not just doing those loving things for my wife as I think God wants me to do and that I don't just do them for a week or a month, but that they become the real true desire of my heart and that they flow out of me as an expression of worship to God and of love and affection for my wife. And I'm going to commit myself to that until it's my character. And I'll, I'll tell you, we all know some sweet, godly, older couple, don't we? And, and we see them. They're still holding hands. They're still doting on each other. You can see how much they care for each other. How did they get there? They didn't get there without trying. I think they got there as they, whether, whether they're doing it as consciously as what I'm describing it to you tonight, they got there as they, as they allowed the Word of God to teach them and convict them and correct them and then train them in that, that virtue of mutual affection and care and gentleness for one another. That's what the Word of God can do. Now, the challenge for us, right, is to say, well, uh, I, I hear you. Uh, that's, that sounds really good. I don't know how to bring the Word of God to someone who's, who's struggling maybe with despair or anxiety I, I, don't, I don't know how to, to bring the Word of God to bear in a, a person's life if, if their spouse is calling them a narcissist. And I don't know how to help their spouse either because they're, they're in so much pain. How do I bring the, the truth of God's Word into people's lives like that? And, and my challenge to you, and we're, we're not done talking about those things, I promise. Uh, we will talk about how change happens and, and, uh, and give you some tips and tools for that later. Um, but my goal tonight, this session, is to convince you this is where you need to turn. This is what I need to know. If you're going to try to help people through the hardships of life using, using the principles and, and practices of modern therapy, um, you think this is hard to study. There's like 500 philosophies of how to help people change in, in secular therapy it would be endless. It would be endless and impossible. And the reason there's so many is because all the ones that came before them didn't work. And so they develop a new one and a new one and a new one and a new one when all along God has given us His sufficient Word to help people through the real, the real issues of life. And, and I mean all of them. The, the Ecclesiastes issues of life, if I can put it that way. The life under the sun is, is hard. Uh, but God's Word is sufficient to meet that task. In fact, as Paul says, it makes us complete or adequate, equipped for every good work. That's, that's my challenge to you. Do you believe it? I think you probably believe it. Are we going to believe it enough to put it into practice and not allow ourselves to get distracted by other things? That's, that's my prayer and hope uh, for Gold Country Baptists. Let's pray. God, thank you. For your word, it is it is so rich. Uh, we uh, we can't really scratch deeply enough on how it is that uh, your word can make us be partakers of of the divine nature. We we read phrases like that and and we're amazed. We wonder uh, why and when will I see that in my own life? And 
uh, yet we, we acknowledge that it's true. And God, I pray that you'd help us to let that truth really take uh, root in our hearts and, and grow uh, the roots of our confidence in you and in your word uh, deeper and deeper. I thank you for this church and the privilege of being here to, uh, to, to help them toward that end uh, this week. And we pray your continued blessing uh, on your word as we, we study it together in your name. Amen.